Cool. Okay. Um, thanks very much to Nathan English and RJ who put that together for me in like half a day yesterday. So I'm really, really grateful to those guys. All right. Okay. Let's open our Bibles. Um, come with me to Joshua chapter two and let's stand in expectation for what God might say to us from his word. Joshua chapter two. Entitled Rahab and the Spies. It begins like this. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, secretly sent out two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out to me the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up onto the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out there. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up onto the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard of it, our hearts sank and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives the men assured her, if you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so that the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there for three days until they return and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and your mother and your brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our heads if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. And then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river and came to the... Sorry, they forded the river and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All of the people are melting in fear because of us. This is God's word. You may be seated.
And let's pray as we begin. Our Father, we are so grateful to you that you are not a silent God. We're so grateful to you that you have spoken. Throughout history, you've made yourself known to your world. And you've made yourself known to us this morning here in your word. And yet we pray that just as your Holy Spirit was the author, the, the, uh, the inspirer of this text, Lord, that he might be enabling us to receive it. And that every heart in this room would be open to your voice and to your work as we come now to seek to understand it and to apply it. We pray that we might not just be informed, although there's much here to be informed about, but our heart's desire is that we might be transformed, that we might be changed. God, in your mercy, would you comfort the afflicted here this morning and might you afflict the comfortable. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So the first thing that you might have noticed about this text, given that this is an Advent series, is that the passage that I just read to you is not particularly Christmassy, right? It was Joshua and the, uh, Rahab and the spies, um, and you didn't miss any hidden references to shepherds or angels or wise men. They're not there. The reason we're in this text for Advent, like we were in Tamar last week, is that we're getting warmed up for Christmas by looking at Jesus's family tree. And you might know that the passage in Matthew chapter one, where we see Jesus's human ancestry all laid out, has Rahab as part of that story. Let me read you the relevant section from Matthew chapter one. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Peretz and Sarah, whose mother was Tamar. Peretz, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Matthew goes on in that account then to show how Jesus is related to David through the royal line of Judah. And so you can see all of the kind of familiar names of the kings that we'll know from our Old Testaments. But I want to focus in on this first part and particularly on the three women who are mentioned. Judah, the father of Peretz and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. These three women, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, all have important parts to play in God's unfolding plan to redeem his broken world. They point us to Jesus, but they don't just tell us who our Saviour's going to be when he comes and what family he's going to be part of. They also tell us how that salvation is going to work. And that's where I think the real excitement is for us in this text this morning. These three women are going to give us a glimpse of the kind of kingdom that Jesus comes to establish. So let's start by jumping back into our passage in Joshua. I want us to get started here. I think it's going to serve us well as an introduction to see this passage as an example, a kind of a, a wonderful and um, a kind of extraordinary example of the storyteller's art. This is edge of your seat stuff, I think, if you're reading it right. I'm going to try and show you how. The setup begins back actually in Joshua chapter 1. 
That's where we find out something about the urgency that underlines these events. If you flip back to Joshua 1 verse 10, you're going to see this. So the point at which we're joining the action here is right after the death of Moses. Joshua has just been appointed the leader of Israel in Moses' place. And that appointment comes at a critical moment in the history of God's people. They're standing now right on the border of Canaan, and they're not doing that just because they like going on kind of random hiking excursions. They're standing on the border of Canaan because Canaan is the land that God told Abraham to go to back in Genesis 12. Do you remember? Get up and go to the land that I will show you. But Canaan is also the land that God promised to Abraham's descendants to be a country of their own. God said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. So this is um, taking us a little bit further, isn't it? This isn't just that he wants to give them a land. He's also going to build them into a great people. And against all expectation, God did that. So remember, Joshua and Sarah couldn't have children. Their children turned out not to be able to have children. This wasn't a very promising start for nation building, right? But God did it. By the time we get to Joshua chapter one, the new leader of Israel is looking out over a vast tented city of people. And every single man, woman, and child in that city is a direct descendant of Abraham. Amazing. But God also said to Abraham, I will bless you. And he'd done that too. God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. He hurled their oppressor, Pharaoh, and his army into the sea. God had come to dwell with the Israelites in their midst, hadn't he? In a pillar of cloud and fire, the Shekinah glory of God. God had dwelt with him in his tabernacle. He had taken up a street address right in the middle of the Israelite camp. God had spoken to them from Mount Sinai. These were amazing marks of the blessing of God. In fact, the only thing that God had promised to do that hadn't yet happened was to bring them into the promised land. And in Joshua chapter 1, verse 10, that's exactly what's about to happen. So it goes like this. Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell them, get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here and go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you. And that's where our story begins. Can you see that? It's just three days now until the completion of this massive period, years, decades of expectation, just three days to go before they finally cross the Jordan and face whatever's waiting them on the other side. And that explains the need for the spies, doesn't it? You see, these spies weren't just being sent on some kind of speculative fact-finding mission. You know, I, I wonder what life is like over there in Canaan for research purposes. I, you know, I, in case someone might ever be crazy enough to actually decide to go there at some hypothetical point in the future. No, not that at all. These guys were like the members of the special forces who were sent into occupied France on the, on the eve of the D-Day landings. And their role was mission critical. Was the crossing guarded? Was the advance expected? How was the morale of the enemy? How many soldiers did they have? These things were vital pieces of information for Joshua and his commander's right. And these spies had a very narrow window of time in which to operate before the, uh, uh, the three days were up and uh, the Israelite army were going to start moving across the river. Three days after that time, intelligence or no intelligence, the Israelites had gone. And so, of course, this whole thing with the spies also has a history of its own. You see, the Israelites had encamped on the border of Canaan before, hadn't they? 40 years before. 
and they'd sent out spies before. You might remember that Joshua himself was one of them. And two of the spies that they sent out, Joshua and Caleb, had come back confident that in God's strength, the land could be taken. But sadly, the 10 other spies who went with them came back with stories of giants and unassailable cities, and the Israelites bottled it, despite everything that God had done for them, despite the amazing things that they had seen. It's no accident, is it this time, that Joshua only sends two spies? Can you see the cogs turning in his head? He doesn't want to send the other 10 out and uh, have them come back with a negative response. He's kind of like tilting the thing right from the beginning. So our passage starts at the beginning of this daring operation. And like many of the best stories in fiction and in fact, it almost ends in disaster before it's hardly begun. It reminds me, and uh, forgive me, those of you who know my Lord of the Rings predilections, I I guess I can be forgiven for this in uh, living in Oxford. But it reminds me of that sequence right at the beginning of that great story when the hobbits leave the Shire and then oh so nearly get caught by the Black Riders right away. It's one of the most chilling moments in the whole book, I think, because you can see that they're obviously so vulnerable and so uh, kind of lacking in protection. And if you look down at the first three verses of Joshua 2 with me, you'll see we have exactly that same kind of uh, moment that we've come to in this story. First, we read that the spies enter the house of a prostitute and stay there. And if we can just block out the happy ending that we all know is coming, we should be looking at that and thinking, oh my goodness, this is terrible. Now, this is the worst possible start, isn't it? The spies are letting the side down like the first lot did. Surely Joshua could have chosen some individuals with just a little bit more moral fibre than this. And the very first thing they do is get themselves mixed up with the worst possible person. And then it goes from bad to worse because they're immediately discovered. The king of Jericho finds out about them on the night that they arrive. And it isn't just the news that some strangers have arrived in town that he hears. No, it's very specific. He finds out that they're Israelites. He finds out that they've come with the purpose of spying out the whole land. And he knows exactly where they've gone, that they've gone to Rahab's house. This is a disaster, isn't it? This is the very first thing that Joshua has commanded as the new leader of Israel. And it's turning into ashes in his hands. It might just be that these spies weren't very subtle. You know, maybe they hadn't done anything like this before. Maybe they went round asking overly obvious questions about Jericho's defences with heavy Hebrew accents. Uh, (laughs) That wouldn't give us much confidence in Joshua's recruitment skills, would it? But actually, I think there's a more probable explanation here, which is even more disturbing. And that's just that the king of Jericho was a really sophisticated adversary. He was smart. He was suspicious. He was prepared. He had a network of informers who spotted the minutest details. And the Israelites are walking into a baited trap. Right at this moment, though, the story takes a dramatic twist. The woman who has taken the spies into her house and who, up till this moment, we have had every reason to fear as an enemy, is suddenly revealed to be a friend and a very smart and capable friend at that. This is like the frightened and desperate hobbits meeting Aragorn, okay? Just to complete our little Lord of the Rings digression. Our narrator keeps us waiting to find out why, but at this point, Rahab steps into the story and she meets the calculating determination of the king of Jericho with some calculating determination of her own. Notice, first of all, that she anticipates the king's initiative to find the spies. He may be pretty clever, acting to capture them before they've been in Jericho a single night, but she's cleverer still. 
She guesses that he's going to be looking for them before it happens. By the time agents from the king arrive at her door with his message, they're already hidden. Notice next the high stakes game that she's willing to play. What would you have done in this situation, I wonder? You know, the secret police are banging on the door, asking you to kind of surrender the people that you're protecting. The natural response is surely, I don't know what you're talking about. I never saw them. Disassociating yourself from the whole thing and just hoping that they move on to the next house. But Rahab is too smart for that. She's smart enough to guess that the king's agents are knocking on her door because they know this is the door behind which the spies hid. And so very daringly, she accepts that fact. And she tells them, yeah, the spies were here and they've literally just left and they might still be caught if you pursue them with sufficient speed. That's really smart. That's a genius move. It's setting Rahab up for all kinds of trouble down the line, isn't it? She's sure to be questioned now about these guys who came to her house, questions about what it is that they wanted. But the fruit of it is that she buys the spies time to escape. Rahab puts herself in danger to secure their safety. But that's not the end of the drama. You see, the king's agents now rush off, assuming that the spies have escaped back towards the fords of the Jordan where they crossed. And as they leave, we read the city gates are shut behind them. And so for all we know now, thanks to the artful narration of this tale, the spies are trapped. We're not going to find out till the very last moment that Rahab's house is built into the wall of the city and she can let them out the window. And even then the drama won't be over because the king's henchmen now are swarming all over the road that leads back to safety. And Rahab advises them to take what seems to be a really desperate alternative. She says, hide out in the mountains for three days which would have been nerve-wracking enough, I'm sure, without the knowledge that three days is exactly how long they have to get back to make their report before the Israelite army crosses the river. So right till the final second of this account, we're left wondering if the spies are going to get back in time to pass on their intelligence. And it sometimes goes that way, doesn't it, in our journey of trusting God? Because just because we know he is in overarching, sovereign control of his world, and he is, He doesn't necessarily give us the benefit of the kind of plan of events. It doesn't mean that his help is going to show up before the very last second that it's needed. Back in the Rahab story, though, all that is still to come. In verse 8, we follow her upstairs onto the roof, wondering how in the world the spies are going to get out of this. And it's only at that point that we begin to see that God has this whole adventure in his hands and that we begin to find out the why behind the what the explanation for these immense risks that Rahab has been taking on their behalf. You see, at some point, unknown to us in the months or days before this incident, Rahab has become a woman of faith. A faith so striking against the wider background of faithlessness in Canaan that she is one of only two women in the whole of the Old Testament to be celebrated in that great roll call of faith that we find in our New Testaments in Hebrews 11. And as she functions in Hebrews, so she also functions for us as a model of faith in some very helpful ways. And I'm just going to pull out four of these for us here. First, notice with me that Rahab's faith faith was based on God's actions in the past. This is obvious, isn't it, in the very first thing she says. She says, we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you 
When you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, who you completely destroyed. The two incidents that she's referring to here come from different points in Israel's recent and not so recent history. The first is the Exodus itself, that defining moment when God parted the waters of the Red Sea and let his people through. And since those stories have been uh, kind of first circulating through the region, um, yeah, you can imagine the impact that that would have had on uh, the neighbouring uh, nations. Forty years had gone by, though, since that had happened. The second incident uh, that she mentions, though, this thing with Sion and Og, this is still front-page news. The battle with the Amorite kings, we can read about it in Numbers 21, secured the land where the tribes of Reuben and Gad and Manasseh had literally just decided to settle on the east side of the Jordan. So what would you have made of all of this if you were Rahab? If Israel's God could part the Red Sea, then the Jordan River was not going to be much of a defence for you against his people's progress. And the reassuring thought that at least all of this happened more than a generation ago would have withered pretty kind of immediately, I imagine, when they realised with this battle against the Amorites that the Israelites and their God were still very much in business. Whoever this God was, he was no myth and he was steering inexorably in Rahab's direction. The important point, though, is that Rahab didn't personally see any of this, did she? The exodus didn't even happen in her lifetime. She believed on the basis of what she heard. And that's the first important point for us to notice about her faith. Not seeing is no obstacle to this lady who is an example for us. She doesn't need some kind of angelic visitation. She bases her confidence on testimony about what God has done in the past. And so do we. The second thing to notice is that her faith was grounded on God's identity. So if you look down at the end of verse 11, you'll see she concludes, the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. In the ancient world, gods were closely associated with the nations who worshipped them. So we read about the gods of the Canaanites, the gods of the Egyptians, the gods of the Philistines. Each nation had its own gods, And the thought was that these gods were kind of geographically limited. So if you lived in Egypt, you worshipped the gods of Egypt. And if you lived in Canaan, you worshipped the gods of Canaan. This is one of the reasons why Israel has such a difficult time with idolatry when they first enter into the promised land. You see, people's relationships with the gods in the ancient world were a bit like our relationships with utility suppliers in the modern world. I have a contract just for your information, uh, with Oxford City Council for the removal of garden waste from our house once every two weeks on a Thursday. But if I move back to Grand Rapids, I wouldn't get much joy calling up Oxford City Council and complaining about the fact that they're not collecting my garden waste anymore, would I? Because I've moved to a new location and I need a supplier who serves that new location. So take that mentality and apply it to the data Rahab gives us. She knows that the God of Israel delivered his people from Egypt. You know, that's concerning, but perhaps he's an Egyptian God. And if he is, the Canaanites have got nothing to worry about. But as soon as she finds out that 40 years later, this God totally destroyed the Amorites on their home turf, the stakes get a lot higher, right? Because now she can only conclude that she's dealing with some kind of universal God, A God with authority transcending time and space. That's exactly what she says. The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. 
You might remember Jonah says something very much like this in his own famous story to the sailors when they realize his God isn't just powerful in Israel, but is also controlling a storm in the middle of the Mediterranean. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land, he says. And the result is just the same. The sailors are scared out of their minds, and they also have faith because they grasp God's identity. They realize who he is. The third thing to notice about Rahab's faith, and I think this is particularly important for our modern world, is that it's not opposed to rationality. Did you see that? Some people want to define faith this way. This is something that we encounter in Oxford all the time. People say that faith is what you do when you throw your critical faculties out of the window. But the Rahab story, I think, is so helpful in calling that into question. Because Rahab is a seriously smart lady, isn't she? And she doesn't look to me like the kind of person who could have the wool pulled over her eyes by a bunch of fairy stories or by two spies who couldn't even get through the first evening of their mission in Jericho without getting caught. Rahab seems to me, actually, to be thinking very clearly. It would have been so much easier for her, wouldn't it, not to draw the conclusions that she feels compelled to draw. The conclusions she draws from this information about Israel's God mean disassociating herself from her entire society, risking life and limb in the process. She draws those conclusions only because she feels compelled to do so by what is in front of her. So the antithesis of Rahab's faith isn't rationality, right? Her faith is very rational, and ours can be too. The antithesis of Rahab's faith is self-sufficiency. That's the thing that she's enabled to lay down here. For all her incredible intelligence and coolness under pressure, Rahab knows she's reached the end of her resources now that she's faced with the God of Israel. If she keeps trusting herself, her, her family and herself, she, they have no future. And as I read it, this faith of Rahab manifests itself in the most incredibly attractive way, doesn't it? If you look at the transformation, don't we need some of this in our own lives? Saying goodbye to self-sufficiency has made Rahab able to process critique. She doesn't try to defend herself or her culture against God, does she? She doesn't rail against the spy saying, how dare you do this? Or how dare your God command our destruction? Why God commands the destruction of the Canaanites is a vital question about this passage. And I'll be really happy to deal with that afterwards if that's your question. But the thing for us to notice in the text itself is that as a Canaanite, Rahab accepts it. She's told she's in the wrong and she doesn't immediately jump to her own defence. Her faith has liberated her from the need to prop herself up all the time, right? She's not clinging to self-sufficiency anymore uh, and accepting her insufficiency turns out to be a life-giving step. But that's not where this stops. Rahab hasn't just been enabled to process critique. She's also been enabled to give encouragement. Imagine the transformation this encounter with Rahab accomplished in the lives of these two spies hiding out on her roof. Before she speaks, this brief experience that they've had in Jericho must surely have completely crushed any hope that they had that Israel might prevail in the battle that was coming. What chance would the artless Israelites have against the police state of the king of Jericho? But when Rahab speaks, everything changes. She doesn't go, first of all, for the most natural topic of conversation, does she? 
we're expecting her to say, how are you guys going to help me out of this situation? Like, what's going to happen to my family? But that's not where she goes. The first thing she does is she encourages them. She tells them that for all their formidable exterior, the people of Jericho are melting in fear because of their God. She tells them that she knows that the Lord has given them her land. Isn't that just the very thing that these guys most need to hear? And it's not just words, is it? And hear this. Encouragement changes the trajectory of history. These guys, bowed down, beaten, and feeling like total failures, probably never would have made it out of the city alive, right, even if they had managed to get beyond Rahab's front door. And if they had made it out, feeling bowed down and broken, imagine the impact they would have had on their fellow Israelites when they got back to the camp. It would have been just like the bad report of the spies 40 years before, right? But Rahab's faith, manifested in encouragement, turns them into totally new men. Guys who could barely have staggered down the stairs are now ready to run into battle, daring every risk, uh, venturing themselves against anything that the king of Jericho can throw at them. It's incredible. And faith is still the same today. Authentic faith is still the antithesis of self-sufficiency. And it can and it should manifest itself in the same way that it manifests itself here with Rahab. In a world that's inclined to demand encouragement and to interpret critique as a personal attack, we should be different, shouldn't we, as Christians? We should be inclined to give encouragement and receive critique because we've nothing to hide now, right? And everything to gain. Don't we need this in our marriages? Don't we need this in our families and our friendships? Don't we need this in our interactions with people at work or college? May God make us people who don't need to be right so badly that we can never be wrong. And don't need to be encouraged so badly we're blind to the potential to transform other people's situations that is there for us if we're prepared to encourage them. But we're still not quite done with Rahab's faith. You see, fourthly, her faith is indivisible from action. This is the detail that comes to the surface in the only other New Testament reference to Rahab in James chapter 2. Rahab demonstrates the fact that though we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by a changed life. Rahab's faith leads immediately to a series of bold, life-endangering decisions, doesn't it? In fact, it's striking that in our text, she is doing faith before she ever professes faith. She's doing faith on her doorstep, isn't she? Back in verse four, before we've heard her utter a word. Or maybe we should say that she professes faith with action before she professes faith with words. She acts on the assumption that God is who he's revealed himself to be, that he's the inevitable victor in this coming confrontation, that he's working in and through these spies despite the fact that they seem a little bit substandard. This is faith in the raw, isn't it? It's not a feeling. It's not a set of doctrinal distinctives to which we've kind of given our assent at some point in the increasingly remote past. Faith is taking God at his word in the practical decisions of the present, however good or bad that feels. And Rahab has it in spades. But all this still hasn't still got us very far into our quest to understand the New Testament reference to Rahab with which we started this, has it? Why does Matthew call attention to Rahab in Jesus' genealogy? 
And what clues does her story hold for the life and mission of the baby in the manger? I think there are some pretty amazing answers to that question here in this text. And I hope you'll bear with me. It's going to start off feeling a little bit obscure as we get to grips with this. But I think it's going to bring us ultimately right into the wheelhouse of what this text is really trying to say to us. So first, think back with me to the promises that God made to Abraham back in Genesis 12. We've already seen that they were pretty specific. And if the Israelites successfully crossed the Jordan here and entered the promised land, every one of them would be fulfilled. God had promised to make Abraham into a great nation and that he would bless him with his presence and his rule through a great act of rescue. And all of that happened. The only thing they were still waiting for was their inheritance in Canaan. But in Genesis, you'll remember that God's promises don't stop there. God doesn't say all these things to Abraham so that his descendants can just kind of kick back in the promised land, set up the sun lounges, break open their beverages of choice and relax. God blesses his people so that we can then bless others. That's what God himself does with his own blessing, isn't it? In Genesis 1, he uses the things which are his in order to give them to us. And he expects with the things that we've been given for us to give them to others as well. So back in Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, go to the land I will show you and I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's what it looks like when God's promises are fulfilled. That's what it looks like when the kingdom comes. There is an inevitable, indissoluble link between him blessing his people and his people blessing the nations. Why do you think that the accounts of Jesus' life, death and resurrection in the Gospels are followed immediately by that story of the explosive outpouring of God's spirit in his work in the book of Acts? It's obvious, isn't it? It's the fulfilment of God's promise to Abraham. When God's kingdom comes, the nations must be blessed. And that's what's being anticipated here in the history of Israel. The promises are about to be fulfilled. The kingdom is about to come. The nations are about to be blessed. And who does God choose as the poster child of this new era of blessing? What sort of person from the nations makes the ideal candidate to demonstrate what he's going for? Let me tell you what she looks like. She's a woman, she's a Canaanite, and she's a prostitute. Sad to say, in the second millennium BC, women were not treated with the dignity that the Bible itself demands. To be a woman in the second millennium BC was to be a second-class citizen, to have no say in government, to have no voice in the judicial process, to be assumed to be in some way mentally deficient, despite the fact that actually we've already seen the women in our story making all the men in the story look like intellectual pygmies, right? (laughs) But whatever the norms of the second millennium BC... God's blessing goes to a woman first. This is what his blessing of the nations is going to look like. It's going to turn our expectations about who is in and who is out upside down. But to the Israelite mindset, Rahab was problematic on at least two other axes. Sure, it must have been nice for the Jews to hear God talking about blessing the nations through them in some distant kind of abstract way, hopefully several centuries in the future. But none of them surely thought that he meant blessing the Canaanites. Because for Jews, these guys were everything they were trying not to be. They were polytheists. 
They were image worshippers. They were bloodthirsty and cruel. We've already seen the kind of regime that the king of Jericho ran. In Leviticus 18, we read that the Canaanites were so degraded that the Israelites didn't so much take the land from them as the land itself vomited them out. But Rahab isn't just a Canaanite. She's a prostitute. She made her living from breaking God's commands about marriage and encouraging other people to do the same. And yet when the kingdom of God comes, when all the promises are fulfilled, this is the person he chooses to hold up as a model of his blessing. God doesn't bless Rahab because she's smart and capable. God blesses her because she's broken and distant and has absolutely no claim on his attention, let alone any right to be included in his plans for the future. God blesses her because his mercy extends to the least and to the lost, to the most hopeless and to the most helpless. And it's that blessing that the baby in the manger has come to announce and to achieve by taking the sins of all those who will trust in him on himself. But that's not all. Think back with me now to Eden. That's our first glimpse of what the world looks like when God's promises are all fulfilled and his writ runs, isn't it? And it shouldn't surprise us that the same underlying principles are at work there. God blesses Adam and Eve, saying, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, so that they can bless the world. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground, he says. Name the animals, he says. Tend the garden, he says. God intends his blessing of us to be the beginning of us blessing everybody else from the very beginning. And it's interesting how he describes that ideal state. Do you remember the word that he uses in Genesis 2? He calls it rest. When we're blessed and we're blessing others, we're in the precise spot that God intended for us to be. And our Bibles use a special, rare Hebrew word to capture this seventh-day experience. The word is nuach, to rest, to settle. And every other time it occurs... It carries echoes of Eden. So you might remember how Noah's ark came to rest in the mountains of Arawat. There's Nuach again. In fact, it's there in Noah's very name, indicating a new start, the fulfillment of God's promises, an opportunity to bless the nations. It's there when God promises to remain with the people of Israel after their failure with the golden calf. Once again, indicating a new start, the fulfillment of his promises, an opportunity to bless the nations. It crops up repeatedly in Deuteronomy as the people of Israel begin to look forward to entering the promised land. You will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and he will give you rest. Nuach. It's going to be used to describe the experience of Israel as a whole by the time we get to the end of the book of Joshua. The Lord will give them rest on every side just as he swore to their ancestors. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one of them was fulfilled. But where is that word used for the first time in this part of the story? Who is the first person to receive this unique blessing of the sons and daughters of God when they finally enter their land? You guessed it. It's Rahab. When the spies returned to Jericho in Joshua 6, we read that they went in and they brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her, They brought out her entire family and set them at rest outside the camp of Israel. Isn't that totally amazing and wonderful? 
that the outcast, the person whom the Israelites themselves would have turned their backs on and looked down their noses on at best and would have stoned to death at worst, is the very first person God blesses with the rest that he promised to them. And it's pointing forward, isn't it? Pointing to the baby in the manger. It's not for nothing that in Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. But there's one last thing here that totally clinches the significance of Rahab in the larger story, if we have eyes to see it. And it's the sign that she agrees with the spies to ensure that she's rescued with her family when the Israelites return, the scarlet thread hanging in her window. This is a memorable image, isn't it? And it's a classic launch pad for interpretative creativity. Some people take this as a kind of anticipation of Christ's sacrifice on the cross and Rahab's appropriation of it. The scarlet maybe makes us think of blood, and blood is mentioned in our text if you look in Joshua 2 verse 19. We might also think that there's some kind of hint of the Passover going on here when the daubing of blood over the door frames of the Israelites spared them from the angel of death. And I don't doubt that there's something in that too. But it's striking, isn't it, that Rahab doesn't even mention the Passover when she reflects on the Exodus back in verse 10. Her focus there is all about the crossing of the Red Sea. And it's striking also that this whole scarlet thread idea is not hers at all, actually, but the spies. Did you see that? The spies have brought the scarlet thread with them. And tying it in the window is their suggestion. The link between the scarlet and the blood is what all these interpretations are kind of hanging on. And for me, it's a bit of a slender thread, if you'll excuse the pun. But there's a connection here that's absolutely shouting at us if we know our Bibles well. If you look up that phrase, scarlet thread, in a good concordance, you'll find, and you might be surprised by this, that it occurs in the Old Testament 35 times. 31 of them occur in Exodus and Leviticus, where they appear in the list of materials needed to make the tabernacle and the priestly garments. Blue, purple, and scarlet thread have a special function in those passages. They're reserved for items that are holy, for items that are set apart for God. And that begins to give us a bit of a hint of what this scarlet thread is doing in Rahab's window. That leaves four remaining scarlet thread references in our Bibles, two of which we have in our passage this morning. And the other two are in Genesis. They're in Genesis 38, where you were last week, in the story of Judah and Tamar. I won't recap all the details here. You heard about it with Dan Mike. Suffice to say, Tamar becomes pregnant and Judah is the father. And in Genesis 38, verse 27, we meet her at the point of giving birth to twins. The firstborn twin will be Judah's heir. He will lead the tribe of Judah after death. It's important, therefore, that everybody knows which one of these children is the firstborn. Now, the midwife who's officiating on this occasion clearly knows that this is a big-ticket item, and so she's come prepared. When the first baby thrusts out a hand, she quickly ties a scarlet thread around his wrist, a fitting symbol, right? He's set apart as the firstborn son. But then something unexpected happens. The hand is withdrawn, and when the babies finally come out, the one who emerges first is not the one with the scarlet thread. The firstborn is called Peretz, in commemoration of this remarkable fact. That name, name means to break out. This guy broke out of the womb ahead of his brother. And the second son is called Sarah, which means scarlet, because he still has the scarlet thread wrapped around his wrist. Now look back with me at Jesus' family tree. We read Judah, the father of Peretz and Sarah, whose mother was Tamar, 
Peretz, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. So do you see what's happened here? Peretz, the firstborn son of Judah, is the direct ancestor of the man who becomes Rahab's husband. And the scarlet thread carries really significant punch as a result of this observation. According to Jewish tradition, actually, Rahab's husband, Salmon, was actually one of the two spies we've been reading about this morning. And if that's true, we might argue that the scarlet thread that he gives to her anticipates the birth of their firstborn son, Boaz. The thing becomes even more interesting if you flip over into Joshua chapter 7. There you notice that Achan, the man who's going to steal the plunder of Jericho and expose the Israelites to all kinds of danger as a result, is the direct descendant of Sarah the wannabe first son of Judah. So there are two scarlet threads side by side here in Joshua 6 and 7. One which leads from faith to blessing to rest to Jesus. And one that seemingly can't accept its place in God's plan, leading from self-sufficiency to cursing to death. But the main thing I think this scarlet thread is here to show us is that Rahab herself is the firstborn in this story, in a really critical sense. Rahab is the firstborn daughter of God's promise to Abraham. I think the spies have the scarlet thread with them because they're expecting something like this to happen. When Israel enters Canaan and all God's promises are fulfilled, something like this must happen, right? The nations must be blessed. The world outside Israel must be drawn to their amazing God. The location of this story in the larger Bible narrative dared us to believe that this woman, this Canaanite, this prostitute even, might be included, didn't it? That she might even stand as an emblem of God's intentions for his kingdom. But the scarlet thread confirms it. It underlines it. It parades it before a watching world. The scarlet thread hanging in Rahab's window as the walls come crashing down around her says whatever the obstacles, whatever the dangers, whatever the seeming impossibility of it, God's blessing, God's rest is for everyone, no matter how tarnished, no matter how improbable. And it's that scarlet thread that's running through Matthew's genealogy to Jesus. The angel said it to the shepherds, and he meant every word. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all people. For today in the city of David there has been born to you a saviour, the son of Tamar, the son of Rahab, the son of Ruth, who is Christ the Lord. Amen. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to you for the amazing way that you have woven together the truths of your word into this compelling story. But we thank you most of all that when it comes to choosing how it is that you're going to disclose what you're doing, when it comes to showing, when it comes to indicating and signifying what it is that you're about in your very heart, the thing that you want to say to us first is that you are for the lost, that you are for the broken, you're for the ones who've made a mess of it, for the ones who can't find a way into your kingdom and who would be excluded if they even tried. You move towards that person and you say, you are my daughter, you are my son. You bless them with the faith of Rahab 
And we pray that that blessing might fall on us and on those whom we love. In Jesus' name, amen.